0: Uh, so this month is Missions Month, as Wes mentioned, and that's a big deal. Because if you've spent any time at Redeemer, you may have noticed that what we do is pretty fundamentally connected to missionaries and to missions and to international church planning. We are a missional church or a mission sending church or a missionary missing church, as is often the case. We spend a lot of time and energy training future missionaries. And we spend a lot of time and energy and money sending, praying for, encouraging, Skyping, and visiting current missionaries. I'd be willing to bet that you can't spend more than a few minutes listening to Redeemer families tell stories without hearing the name of a missionary who once played a central role in this church but who God sent out to distant lands as an ambassador to champion the good news about Jesus to men and women far, far away from here it's who we are and it's what we do and I'm going to prove it to you everybody grab your bulletin if you didn't get a bulletin, shame on you (laughs) grab it, hold it open look at the first page at the very bottom, I want you to find our mission statement, because we're going to read it together, okay? Now, I'm going to add a couple words, because I thought it was phrased differently. I didn't check, Do Did my homework, so sorry. <laughs> we exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. Why do we exist as a church? To equip God's people. Okay, you can stop there for now. We exist as a church to equip God's people. To do what? To delight in His glory. Okay, stop there for now. Good. We exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory. What does that mean? Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes for a minute. And imagine a telescope. There are two things. You can open your eyes. You don't have to keep them closed. Did you imagine the telescope? Okay. There are two ways to magnify something. Or rather, there are two things that need to be magnified. Really small things. Tiny, almost invisible things that are so small that you can't see them with the naked eye. In order to see it and understand it, you magnify it. You use lenses to make it bigger so that you can see all the little tiny details. What else do you magnify? Huge things. Absolutely mind-boggling, impossibly huge things. Think moons and planets and stars and galaxies. These things are distant, but colossal. And how do we begin to understand their breadth and gravity and sheer awesomeness? We magnify them. We put lenses together in such a way to get just a bit closer to seeing all of the brilliant and beautiful and massive features of this really, really, really big thing. That's kind of like our job as a church. We exist as a church to magnify the glory of God. God is staggeringly awesome. His power is huge, and His goodness is huge, and His mercy is awesomely huge. But we are broken, and our sin has clouded our eyes and created something like distance between our corrupted vision of God and the true beauty of God. So, Redeemer exists to give you the right lenses to see God, to see Him in all of His kindness and love and power, and to love Him with every fiber of your being. That's the reason we exist. To give you the lenses to see God in all His beauty. But that isn't the only reason. Look back at the bulletin. We do not exist exclusively to to equip God's people to delight in His glory. We exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory and to... You guys are great. To declare his glory to our neighbors and the nations. And that makes sense, right? Because you can't have one without the other. Once you see God as he is, you must tell others about him. That's the nature of praise. We don't praise God because we have to or because we're supposed to. We praise God because that's what happens when people see God as he is. You cannot see him as he is and see what he's done to wipe away your sins and to adopt you into his family and to give you his kingdom without shouting about his worth. That's praise. It's when people shout and speak and sing about God being God, about God being the good father who sent his only son. We sing and speak and shout about God being so merciful and so kind and as to rescue a people without hope us. That's why we exist. To sing and speak and shout about God's beauty and glory and majesty, of which the gospel is a portrait to our neighbors and to the nations. So why does Redeemer exist? Repeat after me one more time. We exist to equip God's people to delight in his glory and to declare His glory to our neighbors and the nations. We declare His glory to whom? Our neighbors and the nations. nations. Exactly. It's right there in black and beige. (laughs) Missions is written into our DNA. We see God as He is and we shout about His kindness and mercy and love that is on display in high definition in the rescue mission of Jesus. That's what we do and that's who we are The gospel is like a portrait of God's worth. And we carry that portrait around and show it to the weak and the burdened of the world. So, because of these things, we devote a month every year to shine a spotlight on international missions. And we do this not only because it's fundamental to who we are corporately, we do this because it's fundamental to who you are individually. We're here to help you draw a connection, a very real and very important connection that ought to change the way you think about your time and your money and your resources. So here it is. You were not saved into the family of God to patiently await your redemption. You were not a beneficiary of the great trade. You did not wear the righteousness of Christ in order to wait it out until the dawn of the new kingdom. When God rescues sons and daughters, his embrace comes with a commission. You have been commissioned as an ambassador. We, the reconciled, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You can't have one without the other. We have been given the message of reconciliation and have been sent out to broadcast that message to the nation's. The nations. We've been called to the nations, so let's talk about them. They're our audience. We are Christ's ambassadors to the nations. Now, how how you play that role looks different for everybody. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But if you have been rescued by Christ, you have been sent on a rescue mission. Without exception, there are no exceptions, and you are not an exception. If you are in Christ, you carry that portrait. And if we're going to take our role as ambassadors to the nations seriously, we've got to take some time to understand the nations, who they are, and where they've been, and where they're going. And that's what this month is about. We're going to tell the story of the nations. Now, mind you, we're not going to construct or fabricate a story of the nations. We don't have to. We're going to find it. And it's going to be easy to find because it's right there central to the unfolding narrative, the unfolding narrative of the scriptures. A lot of people think that the Bible is a story about Israel. Well, that's true in a way. The Bible is a story about God. And that story involves Israel. But more importantly, the Bible is a story about God's rescue of his people. And who are his people? His kingdom is populated by men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. The story of the nations is the story of the gospel. And that's what we'll spend the next month looking at. We're going to tell the story of the nations, and that story will paint a picture of the work of Christ. So let's get to it. Turn to Genesis 1. Now, I don't normally look up the page numbers, but I've done some research. It's in page 1 of your pew Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, okay, now I want you to skip down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so what's different about the creation of man? Do you remember? What did he give to man that he didn't give to the lights or to the land or to the fish of the sea or the beasts that creep? His image. Let's talk for a moment about the image of God. Now, we don't know, and this passage doesn't exhaust everything it means to bear the image of God. But we can see at least a few implications. Reread. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So at this point in the Bible, you only know a few things about God. You know that He creates and that He fills the void and that He brings order from chaos. God fills the void and He subdued the formlessness and He brings order to creation. That's all we know so far. There was nothing and then He made everything and there was formlessness and then He ordered, He filled, He subdued, He brought order. Now look back at the creation of man. He gives man something that no other created thing has. He gives man his image. And what does that mean? Fill. Subdue. Bring order. To bear the image of God means, at least one aspect of what it means, is to act as God acts towards his creation. Fill. Subdue. Bring order. To act as his representation to act as his representative toward creation. Fill, subdue, bring order. Okay, now we're ready for our actual passage. Turn to Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the tower and the city, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are They are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord had confused the language, the language of all the earth. And from these, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, at the outset, I want you to notice something. Walking into that valley, these were one people. Walking out of that valley, these were peoples. People's. Walking into the valley, they were relatives. Walking out of the valley, they were tribes. So very quickly, it's become apparent that this is the origin story of the nations. Now, the task before us is to answer why. Why nations? Why tribes and tongues and nations? Immediately, it's clear that the nations weren't original. One language, one people, that was original. So, why nations? I think there are a couple of answers to that question right here in this passage. So, take a look at verse 4. Then they said, Come and let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with what they just said? And before you answer, I want you to think back for a moment about the story of Adam and Eve. Do you remember the serpent? Do you remember how he comforted the heart of Eve as she plucked the forbidden fruit from the tree? God knows that when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Hmm. You remember what God was like right at the beginning? He filled, he subdued, he brought order. And then he made image bearers. And what did he tell them to do? Go, fill, go, subdue, go, bring order. Image bearers. Fill, subdue, bring order as a representative of God. But from the very beginning, man has been plagued with a desire to be like God without being like God. Do you know what I mean? There's a real irony in the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against God because they so badly wanted to be like him. That was the nature of the temptation, right? To be like God. God knows you won't die if you eat the fruit. God knows that you'll be just like him. The irony is that they were like him. No creature on the planet was more like God than man. But bearing his image wasn't enough. They don't want to be like God, they want to be God. They don't want to fill and subdue and bring order as his representatives in order to illuminate his character and his personality. They want all the privileges that God enjoys without any of the goodness and kindness and hope that he exudes. And that's the reason why they built that tower. Let's build a city. At the center of the city, we're going to build a tower that will take us to the heavens, just like God. And when it's finished, we'll be famous, just like God. If we do that, we won't have to fill the earth and subdue it and bring order. We'll build a tower lest we be scattered. The purpose of the tower was to be God without being like God. They wanted the heavens and the name and the power without the kindness and benevolence and peace And that's that's why this story is a microcosm of the human condition. Has it struck you yet that Babel will become Babylon, the great enemy of the people of God? This is not just the story, the origin story of the nations. This is the origin story of Babylon the Great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. Babel is an icon of the rebellion of men. The children of men shake their fists at the heavens and strip themselves of the image of God. This is not enough, they say. I will not rest until your name is defamed and my glory reaches the heavens. That's the tower. This is the chief characteristic of men without Jesus working feverishly to be like God without the slightest concern to be like Him. So, God comes down. That's funny, I think, that the author chose those words. We're going to build a tower that reaches the heavens. It's going to be so tall. You won't believe how tall it's going to be. It's going to reach all the way to the heavens. And God's like, I I stoop down, but it's so low that I could barely see it. (laughs) So God visits the city, and he sees the tower, and he sees the hearts of the men building it, and he makes a decision. Now, when I first read this story, this dialogue was confusing. Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I read that and I thought, what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong with that? This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That's the American dream. That's the hope of America. That's the hope of Western civilization. We are born and bred to dream of a day where nothing that we can dream of is impossible for us. But God is better than that. God is too kind and too loving and too merciful to allow you to do whatever you want. He's too kind and too merciful to allow men to do all that is in their heart to do. Can you imagine? Think for a moment. Honestly, think for a moment. Think for a moment about what you want in your worst moments. What if you always had everything you wanted whenever you wanted it? I expect that if you dwelt on it long enough, it would make you sick. How much murder and war and rape and God-defying, world-destroying rebellion did God prevent that day? We will never know. If we stopped here, shut the doors down left, If this was the end of the sermon, it should be enough to move us to worship God for weeks, or months, or years. In a sweeping act of mercy, God kept men from having everything they wanted. I'm so grateful that God doesn't give us everything we want. And look, the next time you really, really, really want that promotion, or really, really, really want that raise or that car or that day off or that vacation or that dinner out or that extra hour of sleep, trust the God who saved the world by refusing to give men what they wanted. There is such a thing as wanting something that is in itself good so that you can spend it on to fuel your own rebellion. Let's keep moving. God came down... And he sees the hearts of these men in the city, in the tower, and he's evaluating. Nothing that's in their hearts will be impossible unless we do something. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city." Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Twice. Repetition is important and should always force you to stop, reread, and think about it. And here we have the same thing repeated twice God confuses their language, and they disperse from there over the face of the earth. Of all the earth. God confused the language of all the earth, and from there God dispersed them over the face of the earth. Right there twice. This is the biblical equivalent of bold with italics and underlines, followed by three exclamation points. This is the point of the story. God's purposes from the outset of creation are to fill, to subdue, to bring order. And he chooses men and women as the vessels by which he fills and subdues and brings order. They exercise dominion on his behalf. And they represent his beautiful work to bring order to chaos, to fill the void, and to subdue the formlessness. This is the chief work of men and women, to be a portrait of the glory of God, a tangible broadcast of of his kindness and love and power throughout creation. Yet day after day, without end, without rest, man refuses the good calling and the good, call, the good God who calls, and he defaces the image of God. Man destroys, he facilitates chaos, he reaches out to the heavens so that he may broadcast his own name. The children of men have exhausted their resources their time, their attention, their creativity, their sexuality, their legacy, to deface the image of God and to see creation descend into chaos. But God's purposes will not be thwarted. The children of men have not hijacked God's purposes for creation. God's purposes... His kindness and love and patience and mercy and grace and power, they will be on display. God will not surrender his purposes. God's grace and mercy have always and will always overshadow the wickedness of men. God is so kind and so merciful and so powerful that he will orchestrate his purposes despite the the intentions of men. Take heart, you who are discouraged. The wickedness of men will not overcome the purposes of God. Our God is strong enough. He is merciful enough. He is kind enough. He is gracious enough. He is patient enough. He loves enough. To see his people rescued from sin and sorrow and hatred and pain and loss. So when you see the darkness of men on display and you begin to despair, take heart. Your good father, his purposes won't be thwarted. It doesn't matter how furiously wicked men fight to undermine God's good purposes. God's purposes will not be hijacked. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God's rescue will unfold and his beauty will be on display. That's the mercy of God broadcast to the citizens of Babel. All their efforts, all their resources and all of their time were were devoted to defacing the image of God. Yet God, in his mercy, said no. And that's the point of this story. Try as they might to hijack the purposes of God, God's glory and His grace and His might will be displayed. All the sinful orchestrations of wicked men after a time will highlight the stunning display of the worth and character of God. I want to repeat that because I think it's important. All of the sinful orchestrations of of wicked men will... After a time, highlight the stunning display of the worth and character of God. After a time. Look, the nations were a consequence of rebellion. Every tribe, every tongue, and every people that exists exists because men and women hated and currently hate the image they bear. They did not fill, so they were scattered. And then they were alone. Have you thought about the isolation they must have felt in that moment? Have you thought about the fear they must have felt when all of a sudden they couldn't understand anyone around them? Their words, their tongues, their language in a moment became the vehicle of their isolation. Alone. Without ally in a chaotic world. And as each family set off into their own corner of the world, they encountered unique pictures of the power of God. Pictures of the provision of God. Symbols of God's goodness and kindness. Some of them saw vast deserts. Some of them saw relentless showers. Some of them learned of the awesome power of the ocean and others burrowed into the sides of great terrifying mountains. Every tribe and people and nation were, in their isolation, encountering unique pictures of God whose power was like the vast desert storms or the great summer rains. Some imagined a God whose strength was like an elephant. Others imagined a God whose might was like the great whales of the deep. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation isolated, but not without hope. They were scattered And as the nations grew, they uniquely encountered aspects of God encouraging their hope for a better day. And then, after thousands of years, the dawn broke. Turn to Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... The followers of Christ were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were staying. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia. Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pam... I don't know how to say that word. Egypt. And, all, and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty work of God. After Jesus bought His people with His blood, And after Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. But before he did, he told his friends to wait patiently because he was sending the Spirit. And just like the day of Babel, God came down to see a people. But on this day, these brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Christ wore the image of God like a banner. Just like Babel, God saw these people and just like Babel, he saw their hearts. But these hearts were washed clean. and These people wore the righteousness of Christ. And so God fixed their tongues and now nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. Behold, Christ makes all things new. God's purposes have not been thwarted. His kingdom is coming. And people from every nation which were a consequence of rebellion and every tribe which was a consequence of rebellion and every tongue which was a consequence of rebellion will bow down before the throne of grace and proclaim the brilliance and beauty of the God who saves. And when they do so, they will do so with all the beauty of diversity, with all the colors of the nations, fueled by the rich variety of encounters of God's grace and provision and mercy in Montana and Somalia and Lithuania and Tibet. Voices from China and India and Russia and Sweden and Mexico and Chile and Peru and Canada and the United States will shout in rich diversity about the grace and mercy of God that have been on display from the first moment of creation in every corner of the earth. At the wedding supper of the Lamb there'll be a bowl of honey butter biscuits right next to a bowl of chana masala. A pitcher of sweet tea right next to a pitcher of chai tea. That's the nature of the new kingdom. Richly colored with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, bringing with them the portraits of God's grace and mercy that they uniquely encountered as a consequence of God's mercy toward rebellious men. As I said, all of the sinful orchestrations of wicked men will, after a time, highlight the stunning display of the worth and character of God. <sighs> Sorry, Sorry about that. I can't imagine a better way to close than to read from Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold Thank you for your sweet mercy. Thank you for the love and the kindness and the patience and the mercy that you showed when you refused to give wicked men everything they wanted. Thank you for the hope that you've given us in Christ. And thank you for the new kingdom where we'll see every nation and tribe and tongue. God, I ask that you would make this passage work on our hearts. May we see in us the same inclinations as we saw in the citizens of Babel. Keep us from building towers. Make us grateful image bearers. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.